Welcome back to the Think Differently and Deeply podcast series. My name is Glenn Whitman, and I direct the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrews Episcopal School. It's been a busy year for the CTTL at St. Andrews. We conducted workshops in Australia, Thailand, and throughout the United States, earned an EE Ford Educational Leadership Grant to launch NeuroTeach Global Student, and published the fourth volume of our internationally recognized publication, Think Differently and Deeply. Oh, and we all embarked on the most extreme shift in education in our teaching careers thus far. This season of the Think Differently and Deeply podcast will connect you with the exceptional educators who authored articles for volume four of Think Differently and Deeply. And we'll also give you a glimpse of their experience with distance learning during the COVID-19 pandemic. In May, I sat down virtually with Dr. Rodney Glasgow, former head of middle school and chief diversity officer at St. Andrews, and now the head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School. Only two weeks later, the nation turned its attention to an issue that its white population has too long ignored, systematic racism and its influence on all aspects of American life. I wanted to sit down with Rodney one more time and hear his thoughts on how applying a belonging mindset can help us support our students and faculty of color, especially those who identify as black. You have been taking such great care of so many teachers and schools over the last three months during this historic time since George Floyd's death. Right. How are you doing as a, a, a black gay man during this, in some ways, amazing time in American history, right. but also um, a little you know, scary because we don't know where this is all going to lead or uh, if it's going right. to lead to the results we want? No, it, it is an amazing time, an inspiring time. I, I always said when I was younger and aware of American history that there was a part of me that wishes I had lived the civil rights movement because I imagined I'd be out there marching the streets and preaching the streets. Um, a little different <laughs> than that. Um, even marching the streets has its own different risks than it did in the 60s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I have done that. I've spoken at a protest with the face mask on and, and you know, thinking about the risk of life in order to have the joy of life, right? And that's something that's really present. And me personally, and, and you know me well enough to know, I'm, I'm fairly bulletproof. And so I can go pretty long, but there was a moment I did a YouTube video, which went slightly viral, about waking up one morning and having this sharp pain in the, in the center of my back, as if some, literally feeling like somebody's foot was pressing on it, right? right in the midst of the George Floyd piece. And that pain persisted and grew enough that I went to the doctor and, and I had shingles. Oh, wow. And it was a reminder to me of my own humanity, my own vulnerability, and also the deep stress of this time as someone who fancies themselves a warrior, right, to become one of the wounded. But you, it would have to have happened because of COVID and the stress of that, George Floyd and the stress of that, what's happening in independent schools and the stress of that. It literally became too much, right? And so um, I immediately started talking to practitioners like we have to start taking care of ourselves right. because um, we do this work because we care for other people. We care for our country and our schools and the kids, but we have to be around to care for it. Right. And we have to be at our best to care for it. And so that was a hard reminder to me of the importance of centering self-care. 
in moments like this. And are you doing well on that? I'm just going to ask. I, <laughs> I know you have a cup of coffee, sir, but I, you know I drink tea. But it, <laughs> but no, I am doing well. So it was interesting. I had a video appointment with the doctor. I never left the house because right quarantine. That's what we do. Yeah. And he gave me a, a round of pills, and it was interesting. It was five huge pills, five times a day. Oh, geez. And it and it cleared up. But to think about. There are things that could heal with medication, and there are things that won't. Right. And, and there are things that you could cure, and there are things that you can't. Like, I was so mindful in that time of both the realness and the symbolic nature of, of what I was going through, you know, in, in that moment. Sure. You, you know, you mentioned, Rodney, pra- the practitioners uh, at, at all the great independent schools across the country and around the world. And you just have come out of your NDPI, the first right. virtual, 100% virtual experience, which I heard was awesome. Right. Um, what was the tenor tone of this NDPI? I th- is it your fifth one or fourth one? Uh, one? Believe it or not, this was the... Seventh one. Oh wow! Okay, we got to get my second hand. And you know, you and the Glasgow team, group team, you know, do such a great job. But I have to believe the feel, the tone, the the charge of two hundred plus practitioners is a little different. I'm curious because they play such an important role at the schools um, um, that they go back to. Yeah, so here's what we saw, was there was no way to not center race at this year's institute. Race is always in the conversation, always should be. Um, but we definitely take a broad view of diversity and identity. Yeah. But this time, race was the conversation, and everything else kind of intersected and, and woven and out of that lens. And you had this deep collaboration and tension between, well, I would say three groups of people, black practitioners in the Institute and and their collaboration and tension with white practitioners. And then also the collaboration and tension with the larger community of practitioners of color. Like this has become such a specific moment and someone named it. Like this is a black moment. This is not about just being a person of color. This is about being a black person in this country with its history of anti-blackness. And that level of clarity is beautiful. And it is also really, I'm not gonna say it's dangerous, but it's tricky in that we also need to be able to collaborate with other people of color who are having similar things. The history of them is different in this country but also the same and the same globally. And so, yes, it is a definitively black moment, but it also isn't too far from what our Latinx folks are feeling, from what our Middle Eastern folks are feeling, from what our Asian Americans are feeling. And we've got to always maintain the specificity of our story and the generalizability of it as well, because that's where the real power is, is the more we can pool our resources, the better. And so I I am watching this and hoping that it doesn't become a divide within communities of color, because that is the biggest win for white supremacy, is if we keep communities of color fighting amongst themselves for crumbs and seconds worth of time, right? right? That we don't go collectively after the bigger issue. 
Great. No, I, I imagine they're going back to their schools. You know, it has me thinking um, it took a long time for a lot of independent schools to merely craft, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion statements. Right. Okay. Um, and, and in some ways that checks the box. Right. We're we, we're doing our job. I imagine all of us have a responsibility to go back, um, especially as we think about belonging. Right. Um, and everybody right. feeling like they belong. But to look at these statements and what would you recommend to everybody as we read lens diversity, equity, inclusion statements, but not only that, then actions um, mm. in light of the historic, um, historic experience we're having. And also, and I don't know if this is the right term, white buy-in. Like there, there's a, I feel like, you know, as I'm there, there's white buy-in uh, uh, and acknowledgement of the historic injustice in ways that, I don't think as a historian, I even saw when right. I studied the sixties and right. now as I've watched the marches. So that was a, that was a big, long question, but really <laughs> it's about, I think we all got to look at our diversity statements and then move into action. What, what would right. you recommend as we think about relensing those in light of the historic injustices? Yeah, I want to touch on that. And, I, and then I do want to touch on this, this surgence of white buy-in. Um, Thanks. You know, you, you've used the right word. It's a statement. And I think, People are in a place, certainly people of color, certainly black people are in a place of, I don't want another statement. I don't want another soundbite. I don't want another document. I want to see action. And so the statements are important because they allow us to hold up who we say we are. And that can be an accountability check. But where I think a lot of the statements that were drafted in the 90s and early 2000s and, and even three, four, two years ago, right? What they missed, by and large, was the action step. So here's what we believe in around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But then because of that, what does it compel us to do or not do? And if you are a part of this community and you're not buying into this, then where is the line in which we say you can't be a part of us, right? How deep are you going to go beyond your intentions and aspirations to say that this is not just practice and policy, but this is in the core of who we are in a way that if you are not this, then you're just not us. And and independent schools have always struggled with that because some folks who fall into that camp are the folks we need to write some big checks and put up some big buildings and make some big endowments. We get it. (laughs) Right? And so that tension between I need to be broadly marketable and I need to be specific about who I am. And that is the tension that independent schools have set in for since their founding. Sure. Um, and, and the broadly marketable has changed in terms of it's only broadened from the beginning. So remember that we can never forget that most independent schools were established to replicate the elite and the white supremacist structure that we're trying to take down right now. Right. So you're talking about changing the literal DNA <laughs> of the independent school system. And we haven't figured out how to do that in human beings, let alone how to do it in institutions, right? How do you go right. back hundreds of years to change something? So I think that's the watershed part of the moment is are we watching a group of schools who are so fearful that they're going to be 
beaten out by another school who is saying more or looking as if it's doing more, and so therefore I've got to do more? Are we in a keeping up with the Joneses moment? Or are we at that moment in the 60s and the mid to late 50s where for better or worse, we were saying, we're just going to be a different country starting today, right? We're just going to pass these laws and policies and begin to struggle with it starting today. We're going to integrate these schools and they all might not integrate as of Tuesday, but we all know it's coming and it's got to change. Right. I don't, we'll see (laughs) if we're in a cosmetic moment or if we're in a DNA changing moment for our schools. And I think the same with the surge of white interest and white buy-in and white allyship is, is it because it all of a sudden is one of those line in the sand moments where either you're with us or against us and you don't want to be against us or at least seem to be against us, so you're going to jump in with us. Right. Is it because we're also fatigued from quarantine and COVID-19 and the uncertainty of the world. Sure. And it's like, I'm going to rage against the machine in any way possible. Right. Or is it because you've really sat and reflected and something is different about the way you see the world, your own humanity has changed and therefore this is a sustainable. And so I always liken it to the, the big protest and versus the sustained protest. So we saw these huge protests, cities, hundreds, thousands of people out there, right? And then you had a protest of 10,000. The next week, you might have 7,500. The week after that, 5,000, then 2,500. But it's when you look three, four, six months out, who are the last 10 and 12 people standing? Right. How many of those are the white practitioners who started at the beginning who said they were awakened? Right. Right. That's what I'm looking for. Are you willing to stand when the cameras go off when the news has moved on, when the schools have gone back into their normal, are you still willing to be out there with the sign? And if so, then you know it was a DNA changing moment. Right. Well, that we I guess we got we got to wait and see on that. <laughs> we got to wait and see. Right. Um, yeah. We also got yeah. Will the will this be another politicians hold out till the calm and you know not pass, nothing changes right? We've seen this with you know school shootings and. You know, we've certainly seen this rhythm with with racial redress. You know, I wonder if independent schools are in a a real leadership moment here in some ways because of their nimbleness. Um, You know, a lot of the school districts around this country, which obviously are are tax driven public school districts, you know, the historic redlining that that's going to take a lot to break down. I want I don't know if I'm just mumbling, if there's even a question here, to be honest. I'm just trying to think, <laughs> is this really our time to, to model uh, independent schools, great schools like Sandy Spring and, and right. St. Andrews to really, you know, get beyond the statement? So, uh, Here's what I'm thinking. If it's not our time, then when would be? If you can't be compelled by two pandemics, at the very least, running concurrently, yep. <laughs> both literally killing people. Yep then I don't know what would compel you. So if it's not our time, then it just won't, it, it will, the time will never come. I, mean, I, I would hate to have to imagine what more it would take from here right. to compel people to jump in and do differently. Right. So uh, I, I, absolutely, absolutely. I'm curious when you, at NDPI, I, I've been very, I've been thinking a lot about vocabulary and you got us started in this and and, and Lorraine and, 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 yep. and Savi and Stephanie and all the great people at our school. Um, I always felt good as a white privileged male to be an ally. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly that's not enough, right? right. That's, um, 
Now I'm told and the term that I'm still trying to figure out is being anti-racist. Mm. Um, but I'm just curious about vocabulary uh, in this mm. space. Should that be the goal? We should become anti-racist, colorblind? I mean, uh, I'm, I've been struggling with this, and I know right. it's, it's a tension point with the lean into you would tell me. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm leaning in by this <laughs> very public global podcast, uh, right. Dr. G. Uh, but I mentioned vocabulary. I hope we've had a, a good, strong funeral for colorblindness because let's <laughs> throw the flowers on the grave and you know visit it every now and then, but not resurrect it <laughs> because I think we've moved on from that. And, and colorblindness is just another way of keeping white supremacist structures going because if you can't see color, you can't fix the color issues. So right. we don't want that. That's done. Anti-racism. Is, it, is an interesting one because it's much more forceful um, in a good way, right? It's much more intentional about it's about race and it's about being against the system. And so I do think that's a better term perhaps for what we need. But I just go back to the term revolutionary because that is exactly what we need. We need a turnover of the system. We need a revolving and an evolving. And so to be anti-something implies that the structure stays and your work against it. But to be revolutionary implies I'm not here for the structure. I'm here for the restructuring, right? So I could be anti my neighbor or I could go and do neighborhood reform. And those right. are different things. Right. And what I think we need now is not to be against our neighbors, but to work towards neighborhood reform. So I'm going to the word revolutionary because I think it's important. I think it is the spirit of the moments. I, I think it is what people are attempting to do for better or worse by taking to the streets and calling out the system writ large. Because what anti-racism implies is that it's not also sexism and classism and heterosexism and anti-Semitism, right? It's all of it. And that's why you have to be revolutionary. We could take down racism, but if you take down racism, you're still gonna have sexism. That's the thing that gave black men the right to vote before it gave it to black women. Thank you for the, that's good. No, it's really, really helping me. Though I don't feel like I've heard, I'm wondering if I haven't heard the term revolution, we're in the midst of a revolution enough. I hear, I, you know, there's books about anti-racism that everybody's picking up and right. um, oh, it's, thank you for that. I, I think that's a good way to frame it. There's, there's another framing piece that I've struggled with. So you keep, you're making me struggle this summer and you're, <laughs> you're a great team. So you, um, you, you, I've been so fortunate to be in, at a number of your workshops at St. Andrews and sessions uh, around diversity, equity, inclusion. You always start, it's actually influenced the CTTL very well, you know, to set the norms. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, the one norm that I've been thinking about a lot is the assume positive intent. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like in conversations, um, I'm not too sure uh, if, if we get that pa- – and I'm saying we, white people in race, <laughs> race discussions, right. get that pass, so to speak. And I don't I, – mm-hmm. I, and I, I find it's – that assumption's not made, right, even though we, as we try to lean in. I'm just curious about that norm. Um, mm. Is it really possible when you get brown, white, black, you, you name it, groups in the same space – for them to trust, for, for non-whites to trust uh, that it's 
that whites are being um, trying to be positive and uh, and their intent is 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 in the right direction. I got a little mumble there. No, I I, I totally get your question, and I'm thinking about it as you're asking it. So there, if people sometimes push back against assumed positive intent because it implies that that everyone is a good person, right? Okay. And it does not acknowledge that there are some people who get up in the morning to terrorize other people. For me, yes, yes, <laughs> there are people who do that. And at the same time, what I've learned in the way I have moved and observed throughout the world is that even those people, as they're doing terrible things, there is something underneath it that is human and vulnerable and their motivation in their own minds is positive. And, and normally it's from a place of self-preservation. It's from a, if I don't get you, you're going to get me. If I don't take this, I, then I won't have anything, right? It's from that basic human survival instinct. It is the absolute wrong application. It gives us no reason to give them an out for their behavior. It is not the right way to think about the world or yourself in it at all. But sometimes in order to fully understand how we got here, you have to be willing to literally put on the shoes of someone else. Right. And I go back to, you know, this, some of the classic movies that helped us to understand this. I'm thinking about American History X, which came out in what, like oh, 2000? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was one of our best and most entertaining looks at white supremacy from the inside, from the white supremacist view. Yep. Thinking about my dear friend, Christian Picciolini, whom I've sat with and interviewed a couple times and who was an ex-white supremacist. Oh, wow. And they all tell the story of, I was a vulnerable, lonely teenager who did not belong. And this group gave me belonging. And what it meant to belong to them, I may not have fully agreed with. And I may have come to understand this may not be the group I want to belong to, but the alternative was a complete lack of belonging. If I didn't belong with them, I didn't belong anywhere. Right. So I'm going to do what they do so that I can be with versus being without. If you go back to assuming positive intent, that is a positive intent. It's the action, it's the implementation and the implications of that that are quite negative. So I do think if you if you really parse that out, and I'm glad you brought it up, it's important because guess what? If we can't assume deep down, maybe even so far deep we can't see it, that there is a piece of positive in everyone, then this issue we're trying to solve will never be solved. And the, the scariest and saddest part is it has always been on the backs of people of color to cross the divide and to give the grace right. and to see the good and to journey through to the point where we attack our own bodies from the inside out and end up with shingles. Right. right? But that is what it is. The alternative, what if people of color dug their heels in and said, we are not going to do the work of overcoming? we are not going to come to the table. I, I, what an impasse that would be. That would, yeah. yeah. No, th th thank, thanks for that clarity. I, I've been thinking about that norm uh, quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, getting back to belonging, which was the focus of your, your article a bit. Um, the Mindset Scholars Network, who the same, uh, we are big fans of the CTTL, they define belonging, it's a, it's a little long, but I'll write this down. Uh, I'll speak it out. 
Um, students with a sense of belonging in school feel socially connected, supported, and respected. They trust their teachers and their peers, and they feel a sense of fit at school. They're not worried about being treated as a stereotype or are confident that they are, and they, and they are confident they are seen as a person of value. Mm. It has me thinking, is, is belonging enough? I mean, should that be, as schools go back in the fall, if you're north of, I guess, the equator, um, <laughs> is our goal, I mean, we probably all have a lot, a, a lot of headway to do, or a lot, lot of work to do in belonging. Mm. Is belonging enough? Uh, and I, you know, as, as the CTTL lenses its own work and, and implicit biases and whatnot, it's raised this question. And, and schools that we work with, and one of our, some of our great partners have said, should we get beyond belonging? So throw, mm. throw it at you as, you as you head into your own first headship. Right. Um, just curious about it. Mm-hmm. Is, are we set the bar low if it's belonging we're achieving, trying to aspire to? That's an interesting question. So it is, it is a higher bar than inclusion. Okay. You know, I always liken it to my home. There were people who would knock on my door and I wouldn't let them in, right? That's exclusion. There are people whom I would have knock on my door and I'd say, glad to see you come on in. And there are people who have keys and the codes to let themselves in. And so inclusion is when you knock on the door, come on in and make yourself at home. Belonging is, I've got the code, I'll come when I want, my stuff is in the refrigerator, I know where my room is, right? The next step to that would be ownership. And so even for those people who have a code, even for those people who have a key, I still own it. I still could change the locks. I could change the code, never let them know, (laughs) right? And then they can't get in. They belong, but they belong at my request. They belong because I've allowed them to. The next thing would be ownership and really co-ownership where it's as much mine as it is yours. And so if there's going to be a change, we make that change together and we walk that path together. If we're changing the codes, we've all decided on the code. If we're changing the locks, we've all decided what the key is gonna be and we all hold it. That would be the next step. So what it looks like in schools is the shared accountability and we're seeing this a little bit in this moment with the social media around black at insert independent school, right? Where they're saying, If this school, if as an alum, this school is as much my school as it is your school, I need you to rectify these things, right? That is becoming a sense of co-ownership. Working together with current students and alums and faculty to say, what kind of school do we want to be and what should our policies and practices be? That's co-ownership. It's it's a much more, as I'm sitting in this seat at Sandy Spring Friends School, right? I'm getting Quaker vibes from it. The shared shared decision-making. Yes. The the shared stewardship of it all. I I don't know. Again, it's revolutionary for some independent schools to think about this because we're so hierarchical. Um, And that would be where I would say we need to go. And I don't know if in that definition, I heard one of the key pieces of belonging. And it's, it's probably not there if it isn't because it's, it's so intuitive to us, but it's safety. And it's, and it's justice. It's the sense that if something wrong happens to me, it will be as investigated, as prosecuted, 
as disciplined as if it happened to anybody else, right? Um, and, and thinking about, I think they said in that definition, a sort of a sense of social connection. And it, it reminded me of the opposite of that, which Orlando Patterson would call social death. And so in this moment where we're talking about the death of black and brown bodies, there are some black and brown bodies whom the system is physically killing. And there's even more whom the system is socially killing. And what social death means, according to Orlando Patterson, and of course I agree as I quote, is I'm not connected, I'm not seen as human, I'm not equal. I could disappear today and the system would not care, except for the pieces of labor that I put into the system. It doesn't care about me, right? And therefore I am socially dead. I am, I am essentially less than human. Right. Um, it, it, is a, it is, the book itself is called Slavery and Social Death <laughs> because that's what slavery is. And as we go through all that controversy of Juneteenth that just happened, you know, it, we, we must invoke the slave narrative in this country and how that is fueling this. And interesting for folks to celebrate Juneteenth because I purposefully didn't celebrate it, although I know the history of it, but you wanna think about celebrating the history of a group of people who continued to work as slaves even after the Emancipation Proclamation because no one told them they were free. Right. And so it begs, this goes right back to this discussion about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, right? Is it really freedom if someone has to give it to you? Is it really belonging if someone else has to give it to you? Is it really yours? And that's what Juneteenth should make us think the whole time, right? Yep. No, though I was fascinated as a history teacher, um, the data on how many kids did not, A, know about Tulsa, uh, over uh, in the last in the uh, recently, right. uh, as well as Juneteenth, right? I mean that, right. that is, you know, it, go, it goes to something that's been on your mind um, as now a former middle school head was, you know, you um, Howard Zinn once called this: we should be activist historians, right? We should mm-hmm. use the past to create yes. current change. Yes, and your concern, and I, I've been, I was in those meetings with you. Our students. Um, at the at young ages, don't know enough of the racial history, the, the history of race in this country, right? right. Um, and to be honest, while I I might have been on the other side of the debate, I, I you know uh, uh, you know I, I really how can you how can if you don't know about sixteen nineteen how can you understand some of the posters that have been in D.C. or Seattle right now? Uh, exactly. And it's such an anchor gear to the whole um, story. So I'm so it goes to. How how should school start the year? It's going to be three and a half months, roughly, after George Floyd's murder and, and right. all the other, you know, the, the names go on and on, right? Right. You know, should, you know, the mistake schools could make is just, you know, maybe, you know we'll start with the Renaissance and we'll go in Mr. Right. Club because that's where the course starts. <laughs> should schools be intentional um, about the start of the year, knowing we got the COVID challenges? Right around you know whether it's teach-ins or should certain departments really drill down on this work and not let it go or maybe they get maybe they get to the civil rights movement again in may (laughs) which is again um just curious from a curricular standpoint um what might we be thinking differently or approach differently both uh, as we head into school as well as as we look at our curriculums Right. So I've got John Dewey in my ear, as well as all of the modern 
right? Educational neuroscience theorists in my ear. Yeah, yeah. All of whom would agree that the best education, the one that sticks in your brain the most, the one that you retrieve and deeply encode the best, would be the most relevant right. to the moment. So, so there is no doubt that schools should be starting with the relevancy of this moment. If you're not looking at the history of pandemics and the medical history of our country at this moment with young people, then you're almost doing educational malpractice. If you're not looking at the history of civil rights and the various groups who came here and how they fought for access and what happened that didn't happen because of that, then you're doing educational malpractice because our job is to give students the tools to understand the real world context in which they're living. And if you go back to the, the founder of the public school movement, then called the common school movement, Horace Mann, right? It was founded to teach civic education. Yeah. And, and what better way to teach civic education than in the midst of deep civil unrest in which everything that we fought for as a country to preserve the right to do, people are now doing, and you're watching it in real time. But you've got to know what it means to be in a country where you can be outraged, you can be killed in the streets, and still a group of people could go to that same street and march against the action. Because right. there's countries where it couldn't happen. Absolutely. You've got to, if you want to understand this piece about the police, you have to understand the history of policing in this country. Before there was official law enforcement, you had slave catchers whose job it was to go out and catch slaves doing wrong or running away and drag them back, sometimes alive, sometimes dead, depending on the will of the other person. And so we've been policed the whole time in this country. If you want to look at the origin of handcuffs in this country, Right. It started with the enslavement and the entrapment of black and brown and indigenous people. Yep. And if you want to talk about freedom, then you have to talk about how some of the very families whom we might point to to say this was the start of of even racial genocide in this country, they were fleeing genocide for themselves from their countries. Right. And so if you don't understand that as a young person, then how could you become a leader of a country in which this is so enmeshed? And part of what independent schools were established to do and do so well is we produce leaders right. disproportionately right. of this country and the world. Yep. Do not equip them with the history of the moment. And right now it's not even history, it's actually happening in real time. All right. Yep. <laughs> Are we living our mission statements? We talked about the diversity statements. The mission statements all say tell you what you should be doing. We should be giving relevant real world education that honors multiple perspectives and calls people to global service. If you're not doing that as of September 1, you're in violation of your mission statement and you're doing educational malpractice. Okay, now I don't know of any school in the country who has that exact mission statement, but I bet you some of our listeners might lift that. That was <laughs> not the independent school polite words for that, but yeah. Okay, uh, maybe it's time for us to stop being polite uh, as well. How do we, um, I got a couple more questions because I know we're near on time and you've been so gracious. And uh, uh, How do we create a shared authority for belonging or, as you said, ownership at, at, in our independent schools or in schools in general, right? You got, you got the parents uh, highly invested in their children, right? right. Uh, you have the teachers highly invested in their craft. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my, very few teachers I've met who don't love what they do and love working with kids. Right. Uh, if they don't, they should get out. 
right? Yeah. And then and then you add the end user, the client, right? Yeah. And uh, this is the kids. We all share uh, authority, though, for right. elevating belonging and really, I, I love your new bar you've set for me and others uh, about ownership. Right. How do we do that, though? I mean, um, you know, I, I'm just curious how you might think about doing that. So one of the things, and, and inspired by Sandy Spring Friends, we actually have a student representative to the Board of Trustees. Oh, like that idea. <laughs> so Consider a, that stolen. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, and that's where you get ownership, right? And right. That, from my understanding, that student is, is put there in large part by their peers. Fantastic. Right? And so when we're having these deep institutional conversations, there's a check and balance at the student level around that. Um, when we wanted to figure out what our response should be to Black Lives Matter, and it wasn't that we knew where our hearts were. We knew right. we, were, we were all about the protection and safeguarding of Black and brown bodies. But when it came to how do we show that? We went to our Black Student Association and said, we want to do something as a school. You all figure out what you think and make a recommendation to us. Normally, it goes the other way, right? And so it, it goes to how empowered are your students to really own the school on an institutional level? Um, that's one of the things. We tend to, to not even put students in token places, but we certainly don't put them in places of real power. Yep. And, and that could be the shift that we make as independent schools as student voices are rising up and students have figured out there's a power and a tool that I have that I could use to compel the school to do differently. Yep. So what if students didn't feel like they had to take to social media to call the school out because they were ingrained so much in the power structure of the school that they knew how to navigate it internally to get what they wanted, right? Because what they wanted, I imagine, isn't public embarrassment of the school. What they wanted was change, but what they didn't have was a way to navigate that change from the inside, and therefore they had to go scream in the street because they didn't have a way to rectify it within the building. Yeah. And, but that's ownership to me. Um, I think it's time to look at who makes up the administrative teams. Yep. Who in this, who's an administrator for this day and age? And, and I think about even, you know, we're talking about two pandemics, right? But there are two people who, at this point, if they're not on your administrative team, you've not acknowledged either of the pandemics. One being, of course, your director of diversity. You should have one and they should be on a senior admin level, right? If you don't have one, you should have a plan to have one within the next three years and make that person a senior manager. And your school nurse or health professional. Yeah. If they're not in these conversations where everything has been uprooted because of a health crisis, then your school is not adaptable to the moment, right? And that's what ownership is about. If there's real shared ownership, then everybody who needs to be in the decision is in the decision. Yep. No, I love, I love a number. I know you've had the privilege of being at so many schools around the country and world. And you know, there's a couple of schools where the kids are at every faculty meeting. There's a group mm -hmm. of kids, and um, and but very rarely, I, I uh, even on the ad. It, I don't know where they could be on the, in the admin, the board idea. Wow. That's a hat, the hats off. Not surprised that uh, Sandy uh, <laughs> bring friends and uh, that's a new one for me. That's great. You know, in the last 24 hours you've gone from, uh, which I, I, this is fun to be able to say 
head of middle school at St. Andrews, mm-hmm. uh, wearing the line, the red and our Under Armour shirt <laughs> so like, head of, to, to a head of school. Yeah. Um, you know, change to green, still sponsored by Under Armour, which That's I like. Right. Um, I'm curious. So then how you're thinking as a head of school versus a, uh, again, a middle school head who also had a, a, a the, the, the leadership role in DEI yep. changes around belonging. Do, mm. do you, do you, do you have to think about belonging differently as a head of school now? Mm-hmm. Cause you have made a, a broader audience. I, I, I'm not too sure, but it's got me thinking about your last 24 hours. You were, right. um, cause I know how that doesn't go away um, with this bigger role and bigger responsibility. Right. I mean, I think the head of school is the chief belonging officer, right? Did my job. <laughs> That's a new title. <laughs> <laughs> to, to go around this campus and make sure people feel like they belong, make sure people feel like they see themselves reflected here, make sure people know who we are and then can determine for themselves, is this a place I would like to belong to? Does the ideals align up with my ideals so that we're not in a place where people come here and feel like I've chosen wrong. We want them to choose right from the beginning and to choose knowing from the beginning. It's my job to walk around and make sure that if there are grievances out there that people know where they can come to, whether it's straight to me or to their direct supervisor or to whomever else, but that the system itself is gonna work for them and treat them in a way that is just and equitable. And so it's incumbent upon heads of school to model belonging to get up out of the chair and walk the campus and know the beat. It's it's the equivalent of reading the book when you had the person next door who could have told you, right? Right. So I think modern heads of school, for sure, need to have an emotional intelligence that is off the charts, that's matched with a business savvy that is also off the charts, because we're right. seeing <laughs> right, the merger yeah. of these two. Um, and independence schools have belonging is just an interesting word for us because we still have this piece that is highly selective always will be is that way by design and so um we need to deal with the people whom we've said we are offering belonging to do they feel that when they're here six months later six years later 16 years later and that i think is incumbent on the head and so I'm glad you've asked that question because especially, you know, as a, as a new head of school, it, it's incumbent upon me to make sure that everyone else feels a sense of belonging, even as I <laughs> figure out what the culture of the place is, right? right. Even, from the, even from this moment where I'm still new, it is still incumbent upon me to make sure that everybody else feels like they've been here before. Excellent. Uh, no better way to end uh, another great conversation. Um, <laughs> thank, thanks for being a mentor and a friend to me and so many at St. Andrews. Always. And also for being so, uh, as I've said before, you, you have the, you've written for every issue of Think Differently <laughs> Deeply. So I would like to keep that record going, Absolutely. sir. Um, and it'd be really great uh, to see how from your head, your head of school lens, uh, which we're all so excited for you, uh, um, um, but also to continue to learn from you and your, and your, your Glasgow group team and all the great work you do. Absolutely. And I, I um, look forward to seeing you on campus and deepening our MBE work and, and, you know, the synergy of that's just so important. Absolutely, my friend. Uh, good luck. I'm sure you got some Zoom or meetings to go to today. <laughs> um, and really, again, I, I, as you as you reminded the audience that's listening, self-care, sir, yes. um, starts with the self. So make sure you take care of yourself. Thank you. And you as well.
I got you, man. All right. <laughs> See you, Rodney. Thank you so much. <laughs> At St. Andrews, we often end our classes with some form of exit ticket or active retrieval information that was a focal point of the day's class. We know from mind, brain, and education research that if students don't start recalling or using their learning, they are bound to forget it. So in that research-informed spirit, here is your exit ticket. How has this podcast made you think hard about diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging in your school or program? Tweet your answers to at the CTTL. We look forward to seeing what you come up with. The Think Differently and Deeply podcast is a production of the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Potomac, Maryland, where the mission is to know and inspire each child in an inclusive community dedicated to exceptional teaching, learning, and service. This episode was produced and mixed by Kirsten Peterson. Jordan Yance composed our theme music, which we lovingly call The Growth Mindset. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, tune in and more. And while you're there, leave us a review. This act of reflection will embed what you've learned from this podcast into your long-term memory.